0: Welcome everybody, it's time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies, the only global sales training company that integrates leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable 10-step process for sales success. I'm Susan Finch, your announcer for Asher Sales Sense.
1: And I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategy Studio in Washington, D.C., Our host today is Kyla O'Connell, Senior Sales Facilitator and Coach at Asher Strategies. Kyla's guest is Mark Pittman, CEO of the Concord Leadership Group, providing executive coaching to help leaders keep focus and manage remote teams. The title of both the show and his new book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Kyla, over to you.
2: Thanks so much, Dave. Mark, it is such a joy to have you here today because when I was reading about your book, I ordered it right away because as a sales coach, I work with a lot of VPs of sales, sales managers, and salespeople, of course. Mm -hmm. And this subject of self-doubt is absolutely universal. And I believe that it's one of the things that a consultant brings to a leader and makes them feel a little bit less stress about it that everyone goes through it. So the fact that you're going to talk to us about it in this depth, I think is really going to resonate with so many of our listeners. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's
3: a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Sales is one of my favorite topics (laughs) along with leadership. So
2: (laughs) I love to talk this. Yes. So everything's about sales, right?
3: (laughs) I, well, yeah. So when I was growing up, I had homework because I was a student but I also had homework because I was a pitman, and my homework was reading Zig Ziglar, Secrets of Closing the Sale, uh, reading Brian Tracy, listening to motivational speakers, you know, reading Dale Carnegie. So yeah, I learned early on that everything was sales because it was asking someone for a date or you know asking someone to take me out to dinner. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of yeah, a lot of influencing and in sales that happen in every area. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. So the title of your book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. And that was one of the, I love the title. I think it is so intriguing because people really put a negative connotation around self-doubt, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're saying, you're flipping it and you're saying, no, 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 it is your gift. So why is it so many leaders struggle with doubt? Aren't effective leaders supposed to project confidence?
3: Well, that's ex- exactly what all of the images that we have about leaders and we read stories and biographies of leaders, although increasingly there are doing some biographies that look at the the questions that the leaders have going forward. But usually we just see the the good parts version where it's all confidence and bold choices and moving forward. and because it's not appropriate for leaders to just be hot messes, um, <laughs> to to be doubt, you know, sharing their doubt everywhere. We don't see that part of it. It's amazing though when you get a bunch of, whether it's you know emerging leaders, senior leaders, mid-management leaders, CEOs, whatever the right peer group is, in a room, mm-hmm. and if especially I, I got to do this with some uh, intensives pre-pandemic where I bring people into a room because often we learn good things, but we don't get, have this time and space to actually put those practices into practice. So putting aside a day to do some of these exercises was great, but the camaraderie that developed really, really quickly was amazing to be able to see people realizing, Oh, you, you struggle with these same things. Mm -hmm. For example, there was this one time I was doing a panel of executive directors of nonprofits and I was asking them, they're all three or five years into their leadership, senior leadership. I thought I was asking, ending it with a softball question. I turned to them and I said, well, as we leave this uh, breakout session, when did you start sleeping through the night?
1: <laughs>
3: exactly. And I don't know what I was thinking because everybody in the panel looked at each other and they finally said, I haven't, have you started? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just the authenticity from that. And it, you know, the, the room was, I think the, the emerging leaders in the room were shocked that, wait, becoming a senior leader <laughs> means that you, you worry about revenue. I didn't, I didn't ever knew that. So I think that's part of it is we just aren't always in places of seeing that, but that causes this really negative self-talk and really negative inner critic to, it gives a lot of permission to the inner critic to beat ourselves up. We're not, we know we're not confident. Everybody else looks confident. So we realize that we must be broken, something awful. We must not be suited for this job. You know, if it's in sales, we're probably bugging the prospect by reaching out to them. We could tend to go to the negative with ourselves pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. We dive into a lot of the neuroscience behind sales and, you know, the negativity bias of mm. our brains being hardwired to just see negative is part of this problem. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: It made sense. I guess, you know, historically, if the rhino was charging <laughs> us, we needed to know. <laughs> we needed to, it was helpful to, to presuppose that it was a negative outcome that was coming. But um, it's not the same in, in our 21st century world. It doesn't always serve us as well.
2: So, I get this question a lot, Mark, about salespeople. And of course, you know, we have a whole methodology of how we answer it. But I'd like to ask you this Are leaders born or made?
3: <laughs> I, well, first of all, let me tell you what leadership to me is you could have a title and that could be positional leadership, but I define leadership as influencing others. So, I, I think everybody can be a good influencer of others. And I do believe there are some people that are more naturally kind of carry authority or have Mm -hmm. some sort of presence about them Mm -hmm. and I was going to say good presence but I've seen bad leaders that have seem to have this natural sort of ability to instill trust in followers too But I I do think it's both I think you can learn it and I think some people have a, a head start Mm-hmm. One of my favorite leadership books is the Nine Types of Leadership, which Beatrice Chestnut looks through. One of the typologies called the Enneagram, and it just she looks at how all nine types can be good leaders, and and I find that to be really helpful because I think we overemphasize a certain kind of go-getter, aggressive, visionary, out front sort of person mm-hmm. at the detriment of our leaders that are really good listeners yeah. and that can really don't need the flash and and show and can kind of let their their subordinates shine without it being a hit on their ego. And I think those are all valid. They're all part of a good, healthy leadership mix.
2: Yeah. I mean, I see it's funny because I'm not very sophisticated when I say it, but when I see leaders who make it all about them, I kind of think to myself, that's old school. Right. And I hope that Others are starting to read the books and listen to people like Simon Sinek and you know Gary V's, another favorite, Tony Robbins, who are really showing the power of empathy and the power of letting your team shine. And it's not about you. And if your team shines and is successful, then you get that glory with and, and it's not forced, right? Right.
3: It's part of the culture of how we brought up in in North America anyway, where we go to school and we're graded on our work. And we go to the athletic fields. Well, people did. I, I never was that good. Uh, they had to make special teams for me to get my PE credit because I was just that bad. But, um, <laughs> but we go to those fields and we shine. And even in early in our journey as employees, we shine by getting stuff done, by having the answers, by having the right answers. And there's a very little leadership training that I don't know the systems in our country don't seem to be very well adapted to leadership training because it flips when you become the leader of whatever whatever area in an organization you're the leader your job no longer is to have all the answers it's to ask the right questions and to hire the people that are smarter than you mm-hmm. but that is it that is it feels so wrong because so much of our existence has been invested in having the right answers and knowing what to say and what to do
2: yeah
3: fixing the problems instead of uh, observing what problems may be coming and being open to different creative ideas.
2: Yeah. So what are the four stages of a leader's journey?
3: I love this. So if you're not driving or not on a treadmill right now, you could get out a pen and just draw a four quadrant sort of page on a piece of paper. The vertical axis is your confidence axis. It's confidence at the top, unsure at the bottom. And the Horizontal axis is your inputs axis where external inputs at the left side and internal inputs on the right side. This is how I map out the leader's journey. I think most of us have only half the map because we don't realize there's a full map. Mm. So we stay on the external input area. So you, you start out, you're given a role of leader, you're given responsibility of a project, of a task, maybe of a team. And either you're excited because you've seen this coming the whole time or you're at least confident enough in the other person's seeing something in you that you can do this. Mm -hmm. So you start with high confidence and you just do what you've seen others do. You've seen parents, you've seen coaches, you've seen bosses and managers. So you do what they do. (laughs) That doesn't always work though. If you're an introvert and you've seen your bosses do management by walking around and you're getting totally exhausted and drained, that doesn't work. Or if you're used to people saying, jump and the team saying how high. And so you just say jump to whatever is your responsibility. And they're not saying that your confidence starts to plummet. I remember one of the motivational speakers I listened to growing up said that if you're a leader and you turn around and there's no one behind you, you're just out for a walk. Mm -hmm. And that can really, really take a hit on your confidence. So you go down to quadrant two, which you move from the observed quadrant into experiment. You just try to fix what's wrong with you. Is it time management? Is it people skills? Is it goal setting? And you go from curriculum to certification to podcast to webinar and just trying to fix what's wrong with you, which is very good. It's very good to learn from these external inputs. But usually the people that they highlight on the cover of the book are the extreme example, not the typical. So you see these people that this particular system has changed their lives, but it only works for you maybe 80% of the time, maybe only 10%. And rather than Taking what we're you know, eating the chicken and spitting out the bones, as one mentor told me, you look at the fact that you're not getting the full 100%. So you just kind of get into this loop of self-doubt that can be crippling. And most leaders find themselves just kind of existing in this stage. They mm-hmm. lurch from success to success, always feeling like they're, they don't have it together. They're, they're a hot mess. They don't want to let anybody else know this. And they probably shouldn't be in this position where the doubt that is in there can be crippling, but it can, if we let it be an invitation, it pushes us to the other half of the map. We start looking at our internal cues. We start analyzing quadrant three leaders analyze, and there's a whole system of how we can figure out how we're unique, how our team or organization is unique And as we start stepping out in that, we move up in our confidence, which brings us to the fourth stage, which is the focused leader. Mm -hmm. And it's not smooth sailing in Nirvana because this is still planet Earth with a bunch of humans. (laughs) so It still messes, but the focus comes from knowing there's a whole map and you can know where people are on your map. You can know where you need to go. Do you need to find a new leader? Do you need to find a new system? Do you need to see why you're unique and why some of these systems don't work? And maybe that's Okay. So that those are the four stages where you observe, experiment,
1: analyze, and then focused.
0: Okay.
1: Kyle, excuse me for interrupting. It's time for a quick commercial break.
0: Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's advanced personality questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management customer support and 17 other business positions go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941 that's asherstrategies at 866-833-9941
1: we've been speaking with mark pitman about the surprising gift of doubt now back to the conversation
2: Okay. So thank you so much for the four stages. I was taking notes and thankful for the quick break there. <laughs>
3: yeah, I was also, I'm glad for the recording because I know I went through that really quickly. So people might be <laughs> going back and <laughs> yeah. <to> listen again.
2: <laughs> so how can someone identify the self-sabotaging stories they're telling themselves? Cause um, I've done a lot mm. of work with Tony Robbins and the material gone through his coaching couple of live events, listened to so many of his CDs back in the day, read his books, and he really has personally helped me with any limiting beliefs and working through that, he gives systems to work through that. For those, you know, people who may not have that background, you know, what are some of your experiences with self-sabotaging stories.
3: Well, quadrant three, this is one of the major areas of trying to figure out how we're unique. And it can be, I'll talk to it from a personal level, but just know this can also be organizational level. Organizations tell stories or themes of stories about themselves or teams do. And often uncritically, and they can be incredibly self sabotaging without realizing it. So, if you want to hear about an example of that, I can share that after. But think about your phone. Your phone has either an Android operating system or an Apple operating system. Your computer is probably, you know, has an operating system. Also, our human operating system is story. And what I found really helpful in almost 20 years of executive coaching is we tend to not think of our own stories that we're telling ourselves. So one area that my friend Jessica Sharp and she's brilliant at this, she's sharp brain consulting. She has people catalog their self-talk. It's super simple as far as a technique and it's mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. For a day or for three days or a week, get out a legal pad and just kind of jot down the stuff you're saying to yourself. Mm. Oh, idiot. Oh, that was dumb, yeah. or they're I'm probably bugging them when I pick up the phone or you know, whatever it is. And try to be non-judgmental in what you're writing down, but just write down what honestly is going through your head. And at the end of that time, take your pad of paper and review it and ask yourself this one question. Would I ever talk to a friend like this? Yeah. And if the answer is no, the invitation is, why not just start treating yourself like a friend?
2: Yeah. So important.
3: The other ones that I like to do is think about your stock stories. What are the stories that you, when you're at a conference or safe to be at a conference again, or when you're starting with a prospect, what are the stories that you tend to go to to help them establish what you, who you are and how you fit in their universe and just look at how they're positioning you or what are they positioning you in the way they wanna go? Or are there other stories? I remember uh, going to, at one point, I just started a journal prom- prompts of stories I tell myself and I came up with over six pages of prompts of different oh. stories. And then you can start picking and choosing. But even if it's just, I never remember names well, I just remember faces. That's a storyline, the narrative that you're telling yourself and you're training your brain to operate that way. It's sort of like we have our own internal Google system yeah. and it's just showing us the results that we're, we're putting into the search bar so we right. can start choosing those intentionally.
2: Yeah, and I, I like the practice also of replacing that story. So once you, it's kind of like when we, we do personality assessments and they see scores and some of those scores are extreme and they're surprised by that. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, Right. But sometimes they're surprised, you know, I knew I was impatient. I didn't know I was that impatient. Right. And so awareness of that story, awareness of that extreme is the first step. And then the second step is, okay, you know, how are we going to stretch? Well, and then we teach those stretch strategies, but in in the stories that we tell ourselves, I think one of the things that I've learned through the Robbins Institute is to replace that story, right. Replace it with, well, I always feel bad when I do this. Well, instead, well, okay, that's a story you're telling yourself. So instead of saying that, when you catch yourself, say this.
3: Okay? <laughs> so, you know, one example that I have found in my own career, both as a salesperson as, and as a fundraiser for nonprofits, which is sales without giving a product. But in both places, I've heard myself thinking I must be bugging them. They're probably, I, especially picking up the phone. Picking up the phone is usually one of the most effective forms for me in sales, as opposed to email automated sequences and stuff. But I just don't, it's not something I like doing in over 25 years of doing this. I would hear myself saying, I'm probably bugging them. This is probably a really bad time. It's probably an interruption. And I realized at some point, I realized I'm lying to myself. Mm -hmm. I do not know that until they tell me that. So I might as well lie to myself positively this could be a great time. They might've just won the lottery. They may be just looking for the solution I'm having. And I go way extreme the other way because it's just as dumb as the negative, but I want to replace it with something that's positive and at least get me into a more neutral space. So I'm not emanating that negative energy into the call when when I'm- Yeah,
2: no, it's replacing. I love it. Yeah. So you talk about the importance of hardwiring when you give it, but you give it a different spin. So can you tell us about the three types of hardwiring?
3: Oh, I love this. Yes, and you talked about assessments. So one of the things that the quadrant three area can be most easily, this is an easy place for people to start on their quadrant three journey because there tend to be assessments. The assessments that a lot of people know about are the behavior assessments, but I think there are three types of hardwiring. So the behavior hardwiring is DISC, that's the one I see most commonly mm-hmm. used. It's how you behave. What are your tendencies in behavior? Are you fast talking, slow talking? Are you people-centered or task-centered? It's been around since the ancient Greeks, and there's a lot of good to it because you can actually see these behaviors. So you can be talking to a prospect and you can start taking cues and trying to, to flex into their dialect. Yes, just based on behavior. But there's a actually a stack of hardwiring. The hardwiring stack is includes also abilities and motivations. And one of the assessments I love using, have you heard of the Highlands Ability Battery? I have not. Oh, this is so cool. Different corporations and industries have had to create different tests to see if people can quickly do the stuff that's required hotel industry. Anybody can follow a checklist to make sure the room is right, but they don't have time for that checklist following. They need people that walk into the threshold and can immediately intuit, oh, that lamp is two inches to the left, mm. too far. And that is a type of It's called design memory or observation memory. The Highlands pull those all together and tests 19 hardwired abilities under time constraints. Mm. So it's not something, it's not a leading question that you can kind of fudge and try to force the outcome. It's just how do you perform these tasks under time pressure, mm. hearing you know, different pitches. There's all sorts of them. So that's your innate hardwiring in how well you do things quickly. And like you were saying earlier, Kyla, low or high isn't so important as knowing where you are on this. Because if you're you know, playing golf, you want a low score. If you're playing football, <laughs> you want a high score. So it's, it's what game are you playing and knowing where you're playing in it. But there are five of those driving abilities are where a lot of stress is created. And we just can't, it's stress that we can't place. But it's because we're really high in one of these abilities and it's not getting expressed in our job. Yeah. And like all strengths, they can become weaknesses if we start trying <laughs> to make them happen in areas where they shouldn't. So that the abilities is just how you're wired and not how you think you're wired or how other people look at you, but what you can do under pressure, which is, it's, it's a three hour test and it, to it, I took it 15 years ago and I, I refer to it almost every week. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my own kind of self-reflection because it's just so illuminative. It was so powerful for me. The third one, though, is the motivations hardwiring. So if you have three dominant driven kind of goal setting people, you may assume that you can talk to them each the same way. But their motivations may be entirely different. Some mm. people may want to look successful, while other people may just want to look for the shiny new object, or somebody else may want to just control an area. They don't care about success or failure. They just want to be in control. Mm. And that's why I love the Enneagram for that. Have you Are you familiar with the Enneagram? No. Okay. it's a, uh, I'll, I could geek out for this for hours, so cut me off. But I'll be sure, try to briefly say it is an ancient typology of nine different stories nine different ways people orient success in the world we mm. we learn pretty quickly in our growing up that we have to be protective of ourselves so we create a personality kind of armor and it's the story of why what we need to do to successfully navigate life and you can see it in the odyssey when odysseus is going home it's actually the same nine points as this symbol that we we identify with the enneagram today he goes home and it's backwards on this journey we see it in dante's inferno So there seems to be glimmers of this in different cultures and traditions, but knowing the motivations is really helpful. And you can only know your own motivation. This isn't something anybody can tell you. If you take an assessment, it's only helping you sift through some things. It's better to look at all nine types and just try to see where you situate. But Mm -hmm. as a salesperson or as a leader, this is incredibly important because it really helps you see how you define success and that your team doesn't always define success this way. Uh, we've we've actually been able to help the Enneagram, helped us to really reposition people into processes that really worked with the way that they were motivated and unleashed a whole new level of productivity on our team and <laughs> really brought down the chaos because we were able to better understand in a more objective sounding way with the, the nine different types, some really deep-seated motivations and uh, needs from the individuals that are around us.
2: Well, you have given us a wealth of knowledge here today. You've given us some strategies, things, you know, assessments to try. I'm excited about the Highlands ability battery. <laughs> um <laughs> is there any lasting kind of tidbit you'd like to share with our listeners?
3: I think in the context of this conversation that as we grow in leadership and the pressure for sales and revenue and all the different pressures that are on us is we tend to not give ourselves time to do self-development because that seems like it's not moving our goals forward. So I'd encourage anyone listening to consider giving themselves an hour of work time or two hours of work time to grow maybe it's just learning excel or your crm but maybe it's studying into some of the reflection things that we've talked about or reviewing other episodes of this podcast and giving yourself credit for that because it's like stephen covey used to say sharpening the saw Mm -hmm. if you take time out to sharpen your saw you'll be much more efficient and be able to do more work with less effort as you keep going
2: yeah Absolutely. Self-development definitely gives you more confidence, which can certainly help the uh, self-doubt. Well, Mark, um, how would you like our listeners to reach out to you if they're interested in LinkedIn? or?
3: Well, yeah, I'm on all the socials, Mark A. Pittman or Mark Pittman, Mark with a C, Pittman with the one T. Uh, you can just Google me. Uh, LinkedIn would be great. Let me know that you heard me on this podcast and yeah. I'd be glad to connect.
2: All right. Well, thanks so much for being here. This was extremely helpful. My
3: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you both. That's all the time we have for today. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe to Asher Strategies Radio on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast venue. You can also ask Alexa or Siri to play Asher Strategies Radio. From now until we meet again, John Asher reminds us to please, please get out there and sell something.